1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Terry Teachout about his long career as a music and drama critic, about how he got into the creative side of things, and about how great art is made. You know, masterpieces get written for the damnedest reasons. Very rarely, I suspect, in this world, do people sit down and say, I will write my masterpiece today, and if they do, what usually comes out is crap. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: Terry Teachout has been writing about the arts since 1975 and has been going strong ever since. He is the drama critic at the Wall Street Journal, a critic at large for Commentary Magazine, and the author of Sightings, a biweekly column for the Friday Journal. He's also a prolific blogger. And that's just the journalism. Terry has also written four biographies, three opera librettos, and a play called Satchmo at the Waldorf, the story of an imagined evening in the life of Louis Armstrong. And recently... Fueled by a Guggenheim fellowship, Teachout wrote his latest book, also about a jazz great, Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington. Terry Teachout, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Terry, is it true that you were the nation's first arts blogger?
2: I think so. I was the first person with who wrote for the national arts press to start a blog about the arts
0: and is it true that andrew sullivan was one of your role models at the time
2: he really was this was 10 years ago and i
0: was back when no one knew what a blog was right
2: and i read his blog you know like everybody else did who was interested in this kind of thing and quite literally one day i smacked my forehead and said you could do this about the arts and that was what happened
0: And so did you make the proposal to the Arts Journal or did you sort of... No,
2: because at this point, you didn't have uh, user-friendly platforms for blogging. So I had no idea what the next thing to do would be since I, I got the idea to start a blog, but I didn't know where to go from there. And then Arts Journal decided to start its group of arts bloggers, and they came to me and essentially said, we'll be the gearheads and relieve you of this problem if you'll provide the content. And that was exactly what I was waiting for somebody to say to me, so we were off and running.
0: You grew up in a small town in Missouri named Sykeston, yes. And I understand that at the time, Sykeston had only one single-screen movie theater.
2: That's <laughs> and, right.
0: And the only arty films you saw when you were growing up were Franco Zeffirelli's adaptation of <laughs> Romeo and Juliet.
2: Yes, indeed.
0: And Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. I think about
2: that as a pair of bookends. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it wasn't until after you left home that you saw any pre-1950 movies Other than The Wizard of Oz. That's right. So when did your interest in the arts begin, given that you sort of had this very narrow space in which you were being inspired?
2: Well, the factor that you've left out of this account is network television. Ah. Because when I was young, we didn't get – I mean, public television was – a very new thing when I was young, and we didn't get it where I lived anyway.
0: Yeah, but there were only three channels back then. That's right. I, but we're the, contemporaries.
2: But yes, and they all felt or were required to feel by the FCC that they had a responsibility to present various kinds of arts programming. So I saw Vladimir Horowitz on CBS, not on some sort of public station. I saw George Balanchine's choreography on The Ed Sullivan Show, not on Dance in America. It was through the medium of commercial television that I discovered the larger world of art and through the news magazines, too. I think I was in junior high school when I started subscribing to it. So through, through what we now call middle brow culture in America, I had a kind of access to the larger world of art that opened the doors for me.
0: And was it more high art, so to speak, rather than mainstream art or sort of art for the
2: masses? All my life, all art has been one to me high and low, music and theater. I mean, it's just all different ways of making the world more beautiful.
0: That's so. so interesting because I was just asked why would I have someone like Terry teach out on Design Matters? What does it have to do with design? Not that you wouldn't be sort of worthy of <laughs> any podcast anywhere. Well, I, I but assume I thought, it's
2: because of Duke Ellington, but... Uh. Well,
0: actually, I think that it's way more than that because I have about nine pages of questions and the first two are about your life pre-writing any books. Um, but I think that I'm really interested in talking to people that are really interested in what is beautiful in the world, what is beautiful about life, and therefore you heartily qualify. And so let's go back a little bit and into your past. Okay. You attended St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri and the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign.
2: Right. I sound like one of those remittance men who keeps getting kicked out of school. So so what happened?
0: (laughs) Why three different schools? What what was going on there?
2: Well, I came from a a town about the size of this studio, so I wasn't quite ready to remove myself to the East Coast. So I spent a semester at uh, Annapolis and then decided I needed to come back. And the place where I got my undergraduate degree was in a suburb of Kansas City, which was exactly the right balance for me. It was the Midwest. But Kansas City is a real city. So uh, I felt at ease there and was able to have the comfort level that I needed to grow. And uh, the University of Illinois was a sidetrack. I thought for a couple of years that I wanted to become a psychotherapist. And then I came to my senses and realized that I was in flight from what I really wanted to be, which was a writer. So I came to New York. An opportunity was given me to go to Harper's Magazine. And I never had any second thoughts after that.
0: Well, I want to go back a little bit before we start talking about your time in New York. But I am interested in asking you a little bit more about psychotherapy. Because now that you've said that, it's almost like all the puzzle pieces are put together in thinking about all of your work, especially about Duke, where you're really looking at the psychology of an artist and what makes that person what they are.
2: Right. What Jeeves called the psychology of the individual. Yes.
0: (laughs) And I do think that you take an extremely, I wouldn't quite say psychoanalytic, but certainly psychological perspective to understanding these human artists and heroes.
2: The approach depends on the person. My last book was about Louis Armstrong, who is a very accessible personality. You don't really feel like you're stripping away the layers of the onion with somebody like Satchmo. He's right there for you. But when you're dealing with somebody like Ellington, who is deliberately in the business of self-concealment, somebody that you have to understand through the point of view of other people, then you really do have to come at it. Somewhat like a not necessarily a therapist, but you are trying to see something in them that they don't necessarily want you to see. You can never take anything that Ellington says about himself at face value. Though it's interesting, I never thought until you said this a moment ago to relate this to this earlier part of my life. But of course, I spent two years expecting that I was going to spend the rest of my life dealing with people in the therapeutic environment where you're trying to find out what makes them tick and where the ticking is going wrong.
0: In between studying to be a psychologist and deciding to become a writer, you also worked as a jazz bassist. Right. And you were also writing about classical music and jazz for the Kansas City Star. When did you stop playing music?
2: I mean, I I came to Kansas City. Once I got there, I learned how to play jazz, but I learned it by playing along with records. There wasn't anybody playing jazz in the place where I came from. I played bluegrass and rock and roll and things like that.
0: But you taught yourself how to play the instruments by ear?
2: Well, I'm classically trained as a violinist, but I got interested in bass actually listening to a Duke Ellington record when I was in junior high school. Which one? Sepia Panorama, which has a lengthy bass solo by Jimmy Blanton. And when I got to Kansas City for the first time, I was in a position to be able to play with other people, which is, of course, the point of jazz but I'd always been writing. You know, I was the editor of the high school paper. I did all the things that you do in high school when you think you're going to be a writer. I pursued these things simultaneously. I actually reviewed a performance I was playing in once <laughs> because there was no alternative. I was the one who was there. Did you give yourself a good review? I neglected to mention myself. <laughs> um, but I was gigging at the same time that I was writing. And gradually, I realized that I was a better writer than I was a an instrumentalist. I mean, I was a pretty good bass player. I was a good solid journeyman bass player. Beyond that, I think I also realized that writing was, it would let me do more. If I was going to be a musician, then I would be a musician and I would play music. And even if I played a lot of different kinds of music, which I did, I would still be living in the world of music, which is a great and beautiful and generous world, but that's what it is. Being a writer... I would have been able to expand that world and I knew from a pretty early point in my life once it became clear to me that writing about the arts was what I wanted to do that it would be important to me to be able to write about more than one.
0: And do you still play for yourself?
2: No. It's no fun to play when you haven't played for a long time because you can remember what it felt like to be a pretty good musician and now if I pick up a bass it feels like I have mittens on. It's just it's not fun. So why would you do it if it's not fun? I mean, if there were eight days in a week, I might spend the eighth day just playing. But this is not an option.
0: So you mentioned that in 1985, you moved to New York City and worked as an editor at Harper's Magazine. And you then went on to the New York Daily News first as an editorial writer and then as the classical music and dance critic. Mm -hmm. What made you decide at that point to pursue classical music and dance? Well,
2: the job on the editorial page was always the day job. By this time in my life, I knew that the arts were what I was interested in, and if I could somehow arrange my life so that I could make a living writing about the arts, that's what I would do. At first, I couldn't, and then gradually, I got the first book deal, and then this opportunity came to be able to switch over and do that, and since then, all I write about is the arts. Uh, It's not that I'm not interested in other things, but that's how I want to spend my life as a writer and, and as, as an experiencer, if you want to use that word.
0: And and going back to the notion of the ability to try and understand or portray a, a point of view about the ability to create, do you think that you bring or seek to bring a sort of way to understand
2: how art is created? Absolutely. It's a, if what I am is of interest, it's because I started out as a performer. And now, at a much later stage in my life, I've become a creative writer as well, writing opera, libretti, and plays. But uh, even before that, my point of view was from the point of view of somebody who makes art. I think of myself as somebody who takes specialist knowledge and translates it into generalist language.
0: When and why did you switch to theater?
2: The journal approached me out of the blue and said, "Would we want to start a drama column. We want to start covering theater regularly. Might you be interested in doing this? It had never occurred to me, but I knew that I loved theater. Although for me, at that point in my life, theater was more likely to mean opera, was more likely to mean dance. But I went to plays, I wrote about plays, and I thought, well, this will be interesting. So I said to them, this is an experiment. Let's shake hands and we'll see what happens. That was 10 years ago. And I knew within a month that another very important door had opened in my life because being a drama critic allowed me to use everything that I knew about the whole world of art and culture in the context of writing about theater, and that was just right down the center of the alley.
0: How did it do that?
2: Because theater is a synthesis of the arts. Every theatrical performance involves both the speaking of words and the creation of decor as a context in which to place them. In addition to that, theater is a social art, not just in terms of how it's made, but in terms of what its subject matter is. It's about the world around you. It's not an abstract art form. It's the least abstract of art forms. And then when you add the element of music, which you always do in a musical, but also very frequently in incidental music for a non-musical production, suddenly you're creating a composite hybrid art form in which all of the arts are working together to create a unified statement. And Because of my odd background, my odd wide-ranging background, I I feel comfortable with the way this process works. And I think that maybe I can articulate it more clearly for people who never thought about it that way. Do you
0: have a preference for the type of theater that you like? Oh,
2: good. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's actually – that's a straight answer. I mean I like them all. But what I want is to not be bored. When the lights go down, curtains don't usually go up anymore, but metaphorically speaking, when the curtain goes up, you're present. Especially in New York, if you're reviewing a show in New York, you've probably heard something about it. You've got some idea of what's likely to be about to happen and whether it's going to be good or not. You know, Sometimes you go to the theater and you can almost see the black smoke hovering over yeah. the house. But when the lights go down and the curtain goes up, you're completely present and receptive, and you just want to let it happen. And sometimes within a very few minutes, you know that something magic is about to happen. And sometimes you know that the other thing's about to happen. But for me, it doesn't matter. I love musicals, but I'm not a specialist in writing about musicals. I'm not a specialist in writing about anything. I want magic. I want something exciting to happen. I want to be taken out of the world that I was in when I stepped into the theater. That's what I want.
0: Terry, you're a man of many hats. You recently wrote your first play titled Satchmo at the Waldorf. It is a one-man, two-character play about Louis Armstrong and his manager, Joe Glazer. The play marked your debut as a dramatist rather than a drama critic. What made you decide to turn the tables?
2: My biography of Louis Armstrong had just been published, and um, I got an email. This was the winter of 2009, 2010 from a man who had been a theatrical producer of of some real seriousness. He'd been one of the producers of Jelly's Last Jam. And he wrote to me over the transom, as they used to say in publishing, maybe they still do, and said, I read your book. I didn't know Armstrong, but I knew Joe Glazer, his manager. You really got him. I feel that there's a play in this. Have you thought about writing it or getting somebody to write it? This thought had never occurred to me. It had never occurred to me to write a play i just written my first opera libretto, but that's a whole different thing. You know, you're, you're in a subordinate position to the composer. The idea of writing a play was alien. I wasn't one of those drama critics who sits around eating his liver because he's never written a play. But I thought, that is an interesting idea. Maybe there's something to this. And I started thinking about it. And now that I've done this a few times, I understand what happened next, the process. For everything that I've written for the stage, what comes first is a stage picture and after that the first line
0: so the stage picture being the view that you would imagine yeah, from the audience what you see when the
2: lights come up yeah. and in this case it was a photograph which is a picture of him sitting backstage in a dressing room in Las Vegas it's about 6 months before his death uh, he's sitting in a chair he's got i think his tuxedo jacket is hanging up but otherwise he's dressed to perform and he looks old and he looks tired, and he does not look like the Louis Armstrong that we think of when we think of Satchmo, and he doesn't look like he was going to look in 10 minutes when he got in front of the audience. You really saw what an old, tired man looked like toward the end of the line.
0: It's so interesting because I feel like that's the image that's left for me with Duke. Yeah, But we'll get back to that yeah. in a minute.
2: But that was that was the trigger. I saw that picture, and then the whole mechanism of the play became clear to me almost in a flash. A little later, a few weeks later, I was in a situation where I had a a week off, more or less. And the first draft was done in, I think, three or four days after that.
0: Were you nervous about what critics were going to say about you, going from critic to writer to playwright? I never thought about that. I mean,
2: later on, you think about it. But at this point, I mean, I, I wrote it first just because I had to, you know, I was full of an idea and I had to see what would come out. And it came out and I looked at it and I thought, well, you know, this looks possible, but what do I know? Uh, You you know, you just, it's like a doctor treating his own wife. You know, you don't know what you've got. So I started showing it to people who know something about theater and they all agreed that there was something there. I didn't contemplate the peculiarity of being a critic who wrote a play. Until much, much later in the process. And then I started thinking about it and I looked into the history of it and I found that the last time one of New York's working drama critics had written a play that that got any real traction was in nineteen fifty.
0: According to the New York Times, and this is in regard to your play, reviewing a play is one thing. Writing a play is quite another. Terry Teachout, drama critic for the Wall Street Journal, makes his hat switching look far easier than it is with his first play. Mr. Teachout has done a fine job of building a fiction plus fact theater piece. And now I understand that the production is going to be remounted in an off-Broadway house during 2014?
2: We're hoping. I mean, we're waiting to see if we get a theater. The production is in place. We want to transfer it. Uh, we're capitalized. It's just a matter of getting the space.
0: You've also written the libretti for three operas. How do you go back and forth in all of these disciplines? Don't they require different parts of your brain? Do you sort of transition in and out? You know, people ask me that,
2: and... I and I don't understand. All I can tell you is it's like turning a switch. I get up in the morning and I say, what is it that I have to do today? What is the next thing that I have to do? It may be the drama column for Friday's Journal. It may be a re- script revision to Satchmo at the Waldorf. But whatever it is, I sit down and somehow I'm there in, in the world that I need to be inhabiting. But I don't understand it. I, I'm not. That's a part of the process that I'm not privy to. I don't know what's happening.
0: So it's really just about being creative no matter what you create.
2: It's a matter of being present. Theater people use this word, and uh, civilians tend not to, but it's a wonderful word. I mean, it, it means just what it says. If you're present, you're there having the experience in the room with you, you're doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing right now, you're completely receptive to everything that's coming in at you and. I think maybe being a journalist has something to do with this because for years I did work at the Daily News in a fairly crowded environment. It was very close to the old-fashioned city room that you've seen in, in newspaper movies. And if you don't learn how to turn the world off, then you're not going to be able to function. So for whatever reason, I don't have any trouble being present at whatever it is that I need to do this morning.
0: Let's talk about your latest book, Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington, was published last month. Kirkus Reviews called it an instant classic. Teach Out solidifies his place as one of America's great music biographers.
2: (laughs) Got to get the check out to them.
0: (laughs) So, Terry, what made you decide to write a book about Duke Ellington?
2: Well, I remember the day that I decided. The Armstrong book was written but not out. My wife and I were up. I think we were driving to a show in maybe New Hampshire that I was going to be covering. And we were listening to Duke Ellington in the car. And I had no idea what my next book was going to be. And fortunately, I've done this enough not to worry about that, because usually what the next book is comes to me during the book tour or at some point around there. So here we are driving through New Hampshire and listening to Ellington's 1940-41 band. And it really was like the arrow hit me in the forehead. And I said, Ellington. I pulled off at a gas station and called my agent in New York. And I said, I think... I know what to do next. And that was what happened.
0: What was it about the forty forty one band that gave you that inspiration? Well, it's
2: Ellington's greatest band. It's the one where everything comes together perfectly. The, just the key moment in his life. He himself has just entered his early 40s. He's achieved that that moment of mastery, the, the pivot point that always comes in an artist's career. He had exactly the right people in the band. This is the Ellington band that I love best. So it made sense that I'd be listening to them. Another thing that I've learned now that I've written four biographies is it's like there's a mental checklist. When I'm teaching seminars on this, I always run through this practical stuff. Who's alive? Who's got copyright control? Where are the papers? Is the primary source material in a language that you speak? You know, it's very practical things like that. So – I'm running the checklist and Ellington is scoring on every point. And so there aren't any of these nightmare pitfalls waiting for me out on the road. I had never written two books in a row in the same area. But I also knew that Ellington and Armstrong were such radically contrasting personalities. They have nothing in common other than they're both black men who play jazz, but that's it. Duke Ellington is widely considered one of the
0: most influential figures in jazz, if not in all American music, and is considered the 20th century's best known band leaders and composers. Dumb question.
2: There are no dumb questions.
0: Why? Why is he considered so influential and so important?
2: Ellington was the first jazz composer who worked with the larger palette of what came to be known as the big band and who used it in a completely personal, expressive way. Even in the mid-20s, when his style is only starting to develop, he stands out completely from everything else that is happening in jazz at that moment. And as his language solidifies and his mastery increases, this gap between him and everybody else just gets wider and wider. And, uh, There's nobody who's really in the same universe as Ellington when it comes to a jazz composer writing for a large ensemble. The two areas that he's most distinctive in are harmony and instrumental color, timbre. The language of jazz was fairly simple in the 20s and 30s. And Ellington, who was completely self-taught, he had half a dozen piano lessons, half a dozen harmony lessons, that was it, and he wasn't paying attention. Wherever it comes from, everything is different with him. The harmonic language is more complex, which is really fascinating because he doesn't know anything about classical music. He doesn't have access to the, the composers who at that very moment in classical music history are radically expanding the harmonic language. He's never heard it. You know, he's never heard Debussy's music, never heard Ravel. It's all coming from out of him and from his listening of pop music at the time. But it's different. It's more adventurous. Typically, big band jazz writing is unmixed colors. It's one section placed against another. Ellington is working like an impressionist. Because what he's writing about is his inner life and the way that he responds in his inner life to the world around him. Many of his pieces are portraits of identifiable people. He was a synesthete, you know, somebody who confuses color and sound. And uh, look, there's a lot of wonderful big band jazz in the 30s and 40s. Some of it I love as much as I love Duke Ellington's music. But he is of a different species and that's what makes him stand out.
0: I want to start talking about the book by quoting something you wrote about Duke Ellington near the end of the book. And you state, everyone knows him, yet no one knows him. That was the way he wanted it. Can you elaborate? Why did he want it that way?
2: I think there are two parts of this. One part is the obvious part. Ellington had a complicated sexual life.
0: Well, complicated is – it was uh, busy. It was hectic. <laughs> it was hectic.
2: And he could not – remember that he becomes known as a public figure in 1926. Had it been known the extent of his carryings on, and especially a black man in America at that time, he could not have functioned as a public figure. He's estranged from his wife. Uh, he is has multiple partners. Simultaneously. Um, simultaneously. Um, That just would have been the end of it. So he became habituated from a very early point in his life in keeping the private life private. But I think that there's something that goes deeper than that, which is that he is a creative artist who, because of the circumstances of his life, he's a performer. He's in public more than 300 nights a year. He's performing on a stage somewhere. So where is he composing? Not in his studio in New York. He's composing backstage. He's composing in hotel rooms. He's composing wherever he can find a piano. He's composing on Pullman cars. To be an artist, a creative artist who is finding things within himself, you have to have silence. You have to have privacy. You can't do that in a crowd. Ellington lived in a crowd. So I think the instinct to privacy was an instinct of creative self-protection as well. He had to make the space. And so I think that these two things interact to create this disposition not to give the secrets away.
0: Duke Ellington is best remembered for the over 3,000 songs he composed during his lifetime. His best-known titles include Don't Mean a Thing, If It Ain't Got That Swing, Sophisticated Lady, Mood Indigo, Solitude in a Mellow Tone. And you write in your book about how much Duke took from others, and I'm actually going to read a rather lengthy um, piece, Um, and I'll try to do it justice because it's so beautifully written. You write, not only was Ellington inspired by the sounds and styles of his musicians, but he plucked bits and pieces from their solos and wove them into his compositions. Some of his most popular songs were spun out of the melodic fragments that he gleaned from his close listening on the bandstand each night. He could hear a guy play something and take a pencil and scribble a little thing, the pianist Jimmy Rolls said. The next night, there would be an arrangement of that thing the guy played, and nobody knew where it came from. This symbiotic relationship was important to Ellington's success as a popular songwriter, since his prodigal gifts did not include the lucrative ability to casually toss off easily hummable tunes. He had to work at it, and sometimes he needed a little help. More than once, Rex Stewart recalled, a lick which started out as a rhythmic background for a solo or a response to another lick eventually became a hit record once Duke's fertile imagination took over and provided the proper framework. He took it for granted that such joint creations were his sole property, But if payment was unavoidable, he tried when possible to dole out modest flat fees rather than share with his musicians the publishing rights to and royalties from the pieces that he based on their licks. It was as much a matter of vanity as money for Ellington preferred for the public to think that he did it all by himself. Terry, how on earth did Duke get away with this at the time?
2: For one thing... This wasn't so unusual. It's so common that, in fact, that there was a slang phrase for it back then called cutting somebody in. Why it matters so much to us is precisely because Ellington is a great composer. And our idea of what a great composer is is conditioned by classical music in which somebody is sitting in a studio and they are writing the piece out from beginning to end. And it's not a mosaic uh, in which they utilize other people's material. And when they sign it, it's signed. Although Ellington wrote all of most of the music with which he is credited, I, uh, people mustn 't assume that he 's something other than he is, but he did do this quite often with the pop songs that he 's identified with, and he did it in other contexts and What it really resembles is the process of movie making where the director signs the picture, but even though the director has signed the picture and takes ultimate responsibility for it, the director may not may or may not have written the script may or may not be entirely responsible for the visual look of the film there are designers involved there's a cinematographer who is responsible who is the auteur of the work of art the comparison that i use in duke is to citizen kane a citizen kane is by orson wells but he didn't write the screenplay even though he got a co-credit for it with herman macewits and its visual appearance on the screen has as much to do with Greg Tolan's cinematography and also the post-production work that was done in the film. And Wells didn't do these things either. He functions as an editor. He functions as an inspiration, as a kind of a tutelary spirit. And of course, he is the principal actor in the film. And so we think of, quite correctly, of Citizen Kane as being by Orson Welles. But That word by is complicated, and sometimes that word by is equally complicated when you apply it to a piece of music that is, we say, by Duke Ellington.
0: Did you know about this particular type of co-authorship, so to speak, prior to starting your research for the book?
2: In a general way. It was the specifics that I became more fully understanding of when I started doing research on the book. Most particularly, I think I'm the first person to have noticed that the attribution problems in Ellington's music really become salient with the pop songs. And to make the leap into realizing that, well, the problem was that Ellington was not the kind of composer who tosses off tunes easily. That's Irving Berlin. That's George Gershwin. I mean, that's Schubert. But it's not Beethoven. It's not Stravinsky. And it's not Ellington. Uh, You don't have to be a great tunesmith to be a great composer. But you've got to be a great tunesmith to write pop tunes. And so when Ellington writing pop tunes was an important part of the process, he was a big band leader. He made records. He made money with them. The most perfect example of how this works is the song Sophisticated Lady. Ellington wrote no part of the melody. The first eight bars are by his trombone player, Lawrence Brown. The bridge is by his lead alto saxophone player, Otto Hardwick. They didn't write these together. It was two eight-bar pieces of melody that they both liked to play on the bandstand. Ellington heard them and he said, Okay, we'll use Brown's theme for the A theme, we'll use Hardwick as the bridge, we get a thirty two bar song. He creates the structure, he orchestrates it. It is his idea to put these things together and make a song. At this point, they record it, everybody's name is on the label, and then Ellington goes to these two guys and offers them twenty five bucks apiece for all the rights in the song.
0: So he's a businessman. <laughs> oh, of course, he was a businessman,
2: and of course, twenty-five bucks was more money in nineteen thirty-three than it is today. But it's even lived.
0: if it was five thousand dollars. I mean, let's we're well, still talking about this song, you a know, lady. a long That's time right. later. And after
2: that, uh, Brown and Hardwick, their names disappeared from the label and were never seen there again. Brown resented it for the rest of his life. He was deeply resentful of Ellington's uh, what he regarded as his financial skullduggery as a composer. Different musicians in the band had different attitudes about this. And eventually, some of them, like Johnny Hodges, got wise. They wouldn't sell it to you for 25 bucks. They would have to be part of the cut-in. Their name would have to be on the label. You know, they'd have to be part of the royalty stream of the thing. And others, like Cootie Williams, who wrote the basic theme cell that went into the song Do Nothing Till You Hear From Me, they just thought it was great, you know, The Duke made a song out of their music. Uh, they were fine with that. So opinions varied. As Billy Strayhorn, his closest collaborator, said, look at these guys. Do you see any of them going out and writing hit songs on their own? And the answer is no. Ellington is the guy with the magic wand of creativity.
0: I read that Duke's mother, Daisy, surrounded her son with dignified women to reinforce his manners (laughs) and to teach him to live elegantly. And he was an incredibly dapper dresser, but he hardly lived an elegant life. He didn't treat women very well. In fact, that is why he had a big scar on the side of his face (laughs) given
2: to him by his wife. And visible on the dust jacket of Duke. Um, So can you share some details about that particular story? Yes, gladly. Ellington got married as a very young man. I think they, they may both have been teenagers. I can't remember the exact age, but they were young. And as used to be said, they had to get married. Oh. <laughs> you know, so Mercer came along, what, seven months later or something like that, his only son. And marriages to people who become famous that are contracted when they're not famous tend to become unstable. In addition to that, Ellington discovered that he liked women in large quantities and also found – everything in large right, quantities. He really did. But he also found them inspirational. He, he tells us this over and over again, enough so that we really should take it seriously, that he finds – he uses women as the inspiration for compositions. The act of sex itself is inspirational to him. He actually wrote a whole piece about that once in the 50s for Ebony Magazine. Talked about the sex symphony. Um, so, of course, he's going to end up being an unfaithful husband. And at some point, we can't date it exactly, but it probably happened around 1927, 1928. He got involved with the particular woman is probably Freddie Washington, who was a very light-skinned black actress. She could have passed for white, but which would have allowed her to have had a major career in Hollywood, but she wouldn't do it. And he was sleeping with her and Edna, his wife, got wind of this and one night, uh, he and Edna are in bed in, in the apartment in Harlem, and she pulls a razor. Basically, she says, I know what you're up to, and I'm going to ruin those pretty looks of yours, and she slashes him. So he's out the door immediately, according to one account, Mercer's. He didn't even take his clothes with him, and that was the end of his marriage. They remained married to the end of Edna's life, but they were estranged permanently after that. Look, Ellingson behaved badly towards women, but when that happens to you as a young man, It's also going to condition the attitude that you have towards women, which in Ellington's case was that they were pursuers, that they were people who themselves maybe wanted to take advantage of you. He saw them – he was attracted to them and repelled is not the right word, although Mercer, his son, thought that he hated women.
0: Did you think he hated women?
2: I can't answer that. All I can do is report what other people said. I can't see that far into Ellington. He certainly – had equivocal feelings about them. I think he found them threatening, as one might if one carried a scar like this for one's whole life. It's no excuse for him. I think Ellington was just behaved very badly with women. But then they kept lining up to have him behave badly towards them. He was really and truly catnip to women his whole life long, right to the very end.
0: It seems as if there were two Duke Ellingtons and they were polarizing, At least. contradictory personalities. He was the great musician, but a bit of a glutton who wanted all the credit. He was a lover of women, but a womanizer. He was a workaholic, but also an incredible procrastinator. The worst. And so you write, none of it showed. The rage, the humiliation, the unbridled sensuality, all were kept far from prying eyes, his fans saw only what he wished them to see and nothing more. And then in another part of the book you go on and say unposed off-stage photos of Ellington are comparatively rare. He went out of his way to shape his public image to his liking and to keep his private life out of the papers. And then finally you write he was a riddle without an answer, an unknowable man who hid behind a high wall of ornate utterances and flowery compliments that grew higher as he grew older. He was a master at positioning.
2: And he wore the mask of style and the mask of image, and it was a consciously created thing. Initially, it wasn't his idea. It, it came from Irving Mills, his first manager, and it was Mills's idea to market Ellington not just as another black band leader from Harlem, but as Ellington the composer, somebody who was set aside from everybody else in jazz. And out of this, uh, Mills and Ellington create the public image of Duke Ellington and of the Ellington band itself. Mills poured money into the band's public appearance at a time when he wasn't making it back yet. They had more outfits. They had stage lighting. They had things that really only the Paul Whiteman band would have had at that point in jazz history. And this was all central to the way that they were perceived. They were perceived not as another jazz band from Harlem, not as another black band from Harlem, but as the unique Duke Ellington and his famous orchestra, which was their billing.
0: And I know that he didn't even want to be considered a jazz musician. He wanted to be considered American music. Right. He just didn't like the Beyond category.
2: Yeah. That was his favorite phrase of praise for other people. And, of course, he thought of himself as being beyond category. He also felt – and this is easy to understand why when you look at it in historical context – that the word jazz was not the way he wanted his music to be presented because back then it was a slang term that is associated with sex. I mean Ellington was all for sex but he was also a member of the black bourgeoisie uh, raised in Washington, relatively light-skinned black at a time when these distinctions mattered in the black world. And he wanted his music – he liked to call it Negro folk music, Uh, you know, which I guess in a way it was. But the truth was that jazz was a wonderful word, which is stuck to describe it. But he wasn't the only person back then or for years afterwards who felt this way. Charles Mingus didn't like the word jazz either. But uh, he didn't want to be categorized in any way. I was really struck by the way Duke handled his food issues. (laughs) (laughs) That switch had two positions, gluttony and austerity.
0: (laughs) So I want to read another paragraph because this is just genius. You write that determined to lose weight, Duke would announce that he intended to have nothing but shredded wheat and black tea. But then Duke's resolution not to overeat would waver. And when it did, oh, man, did it. (laughs) You write Duke orders a steak and after finishing it, He engages in another moral struggle for about five minutes. Then he really begins to eat. He has another steak smothered in onions, a double portion of fried potatoes, a salad, a bowl of sliced tomatoes, a giant lobster and melted butter coffee and an Ellington dessert, which was a combination of pie, cake, ice cream, custard, pastry, cello, fruit, and cheese. His appetite really wetted, he may order ham and eggs, a half dozen pancakes, waffles and syrup, and some hot biscuits. Then, determined to get back on his diet, he would finish as he began with shredded
2: wheat and, and black, black tea, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, really? How often did he do this?
2: Well, not every day, but <laughs> but it is true that among the members of the band in the 30s and early 40s, his nickname was Dumpy. <laughs> uh, so much
0: for dapper. Yeah, well,
2: you can you know he was carefully tailored to conceal these issues. You know, he was a tall man. It's it's really, I was just showing a film clip of. Armstrong and Ellington together in a dressing room in the 60s. And, you know, Ellington towers over Armstrong, who was a relatively short man. That's a huge difference. But obviously he was a man who was a slave to appetite. And so he couldn't be temperate. So he ended up going in the extreme opposite direction. And in the later years of his life, his, basically his diet consisted of steak and grapefruit. And he would permit himself ice cream. But nothing more than that. And the only thing he drank was hot water.
0: Didn't he drink whiskey at the beginning?
2: Oh, yes. He was a very serious, deeply committed drinker. (laughs) But around 1939 or so, he stopped drinking. And I think it's pretty clear that one of the reasons for this was that he saw some of his greatest soloists destroy themselves. You know, in the world of jazz, there were plenty of opportunities to see people destroy themselves with first alcohol and then drugs. This is, after all, a man who has – it's a pompous way to put it, but it's the truth. He's got a sense of destiny. He knows what he is and he knows that he can't become fully what he is if he wrecks himself. So he stops drinking, gives up the Ellington desserts. Uh, Ultimately, the only sensual appetite other than the appetite of music itself that he continued to pursue in an unrestrained way throughout his life was the appetite of sex, which you don't gain weight from. (laughs)
0: I want to talk a little bit about uh, Black, Brown, and Beige, his 1943 composition. You write part of what pushed Ellington toward writing the multi-movement piece about the black experience in America that he'd been mulling over for more than a decade was his urgent need for publicity. It would be hard to imagine that kind of opus being inspired by publicity.
2: You know, masterpieces get written for the damnedest reasons. Very rarely, I suspect in this world, do people sit down and say, I will write my masterpiece today. And if they do, what usually comes out is crap. He aspired to write a large scale multi-movement piece of some sort about the black experience. But he kept on talking about it from 1933 until he actually did it a decade later. And Little Truman Capote-ish. <laughs> exactly. Exactly like Truman Capote. And he kept on talking about it and nothing ever happened. And uh, suddenly uh, William Morris, who had become his manager, said, all right, it's time for you to make your Carnegie Hall debut, which is something Ellington had always wanted to do, but it hadn't happened. And he wanted that he badly. He wanted it desperately. I mean, it was the, at, at that moment, it was the ultimate sign of, if you want to put it this way, middle-class respectability. I mean, he he becomes – Benny Goodman had played Kearney Hall, but Benny Goodman wasn't a composer. I mean, this would have really set him apart. So he knew that he had to deliver the goods. So he finally, finally pulls the trigger on this large-scale piece. But being Duke Ellington, he doesn't start writing it until six weeks before the premiere. And it had a lukewarm response. It did partly because there really weren't jazz critics in New York at the newspapers in 1943. Most of the major pieces written in the New York papers about Black, Brown and Beige were written by classical composers. Some of them were equipped to understand what they were hearing. Some of them just weren't. And in addition, Black, Brown and Beige is a very uneven piece of writing. I mean, of course, he started writing it six weeks before the premiere. And Ellington's own weakness as a composer, he had really never grappled with the problem of large-scale form in quite this way. It's his first try in a sense. I mean he's tried larger-scale pieces but he's never written anything like this. This is a 45-minute piece. So he gets some uncomprehending reviews and some of them are quite accurate and they're what he deserves. And the trouble was that he took it to heart in a way that he shouldn't have. Shostakovich used to say whenever anybody criticized a piece of his, uh, he would say, I'll fix that in the next piece. For whatever reason, Ellington wasn't capable of doing this. And so Black, Brown, and Beige was performed in its entirety in public three times and never again. He didn't go back to revise it. He didn't grapple with this kind of challenge again. He never wrote a piece of music this ambitious again. And how shall we respond to this? I mean, critics – I'm a critic, so I, I, I have, but I'm also a critic who makes art. So I look at this experience and I think, well, you know, Ellington should have known better than to take these idiots seriously, except for the ones who did have useful things to say to him, and some of the reviews do say useful things. The critics should have been smarter, but what could you expect? Some of them probably never heard any jazz at all. You can interpret this episode as a miscarriage of, of what criticism ought to do. But Ellington himself, I, I regret to say, but it's just the truth, lacked the moral fortitude to learn from this experience in the way that he should have. Well, he wanted to be so adored. Yes, he did. It was very important to him. Uh, he hadn't gotten a whole lot of bad press in his life prior to 1943. And then suddenly he gives of his best as he feels. And... Do
0: you think it was his best though? No. I mean it's he Some of it did it is in amazing. 6 weeks.
2: Some of it is wonderful. I mean the best part of it I think is is the movement called the blues uh, which is totally successful. It's even got his own best lyric. Ellington didn't write lyrics well, but that lyric's really good. Everything is hitting. And then you've got the last section beige which is just a mess. It's what dancers call all over the place. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, no structural discipline to it at all. The wise reviewer would have sided with the strengths of the work without ignoring the weaknesses. But when you look back at those reviews, they tend to be all or nothing.
0: Near the end of your book, you state, like Chopin, Clay, Borges, and Flannery O'Connor, Duke was a disciplined lyric miniaturist who knew how to express the grandest of emotions on the smallest of scales and who needed no more room in which to suggest his immortal longings.
2: That's my favorite sentence in the book. Really? Yeah.
0: What do you mean by immortal longings?
2: Well, of course, that's from Shakespeare. That's from Anthony and Cleopatra. And in that context, Shakespeare is talking about death. But I have taken the phrase out of the context because I mean that Ellington, on the small scale of the miniaturist, is trying to express ultimate feelings about his inner life. I think that in the greatest of his music, and there's a lot of it, a lot of that music is in the very highest level. We're not talking about somebody who wrote half a dozen masterpieces and is remembered for them. They're like pieces of his soul.
0: Terry, I think that this book is not only showing us a piece of Duke Ellington's soul, but also yours. It's a remarkable book. It's a remarkable book not only about an artist, but also the process of making art and living
2: in the world. I'm touched that you should say so, that you should feel that way.
0: You can keep up with Terry Teachout and his omnivorous cultural life on his blog About Last Night and in his column at the Wall Street Journal. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City.